We're beginning a new series this Sunday that should take us about nine weeks to get through. And I'm calling this series Learning About Jesus. The idea is to, is to, to sort of look at a Christology, uh, meaning a study of Christ. We're just looking at Jesus, learning about who He is uh, through the book of Hebrews and looking at some various gospel accounts. So the way that'll work is that I'm going to, I'm going to be preaching through key sections of the book of Hebrews that talk about who Jesus is every other Sunday over that period of time. And in the in-between times, Pastor Jorge is going to fill in with some sort of like on the ground, real example looks at the life of Christ from selected gospels. All right. But the idea is to get a, a full picture of who Jesus is. And so the, the question might be asked, well, why a Christology? Not just why not talk about Jesus. We talk about Jesus every week, right? But why a, why a Christology? Why really looking at a, a, a big, broad scope of the doctrine of Christ? That's what Christology means. It's a doctrine of Christ. And the answer to that question is that it's because this doctrine, the Christology, is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Think about it, right? It's not the only doctrine of the Christian faith, but we are Christians, meaning we are followers of Christ. We're followers of Jesus. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to know what we believe about Him. We need to know what does the Scripture reveal about who He is because how we understand Jesus will significantly affect how we understand and practice Christianity. That's an important issue. In fact, Christology, that whole study, that whole doctrine in in the realm of theology is a, is a, is a, it's a very controversial topic. It has become such over especially the last couple hundred years as lots of different approaches to how we understand Jesus have surfaced. And they have greatly affected the way that Christianity is believed and practiced. And so my goal is to, to root us back into an orthodox understanding of Christ, one that's held sway since the beginning for 2,000 years to help us follow Jesus biblically and to know Him as He has been revealed to us through Scripture. So that's, that's a big reason why a Christology. It's a central doctrine of our faith affects the way we understand and practice Christianity. But another reason really is this. Just, just something I've been thinking about. Everybody, everybody asks big questions. We call them existential questions, right? You have all asked these questions, whether consciously or not. Things like, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Is there a God? Is there an afterlife? Right? Existential questions. Everybody asks them. It's a part of how we sort of make sense of the world around us. And so knowing that everybody asks these kinds of questions, 
I think it's important to note that Jesus asked a question that's probably the most important question of all. Matthew 16 is where we find it. You don't have to turn there. But it says, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and He asked His disciples this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, He's he's asking a question about Himself, but He's asking a, a broader question. The Son of Man, for their categories, that was a title that had messianic implications to it. Who do people say it is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, he asked them the most important question you could ever be asked. He said, but who do you say that I am? You talk about asking existential questions, right? Who am I? What's the purpose and the meaning of all this? Jesus sort of distills all that down into one very key question. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? is. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed that by saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. In other words, You answered correctly. (laughs) This is the most important question because the answer addresses all of the other important existential questions, right? Who am I? What's the meaning? What's the purpose of all this? Is there meaning and purpose of all this? Is there a God? What do we know about that God? Is there an afterlife? All those questions are ultimately answered in the answer that you give to this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because if we can answer that question the way that Peter did, all the other questions find an answer, don't they? That's why we're going to take a look at a Christology. Because that's the fundamental question of Christology. Who do you say Jesus is? Now there's different ways to approach establishing a Christology. Um, This is again sort of theologian speak here and it's probably not much that you'll most of you will delve into ever. But, but, but one of the key approaches is what's called a Christology from above. And the idea of a Christology from above is, is sort of, was sort of cemented in some of the, the ancient councils of the early church. You may have heard of the Chalcedonian Declaration, the Chalcedonian Statement. In Chalcedon, they were basically trying to determine who is Jesus? How do we understand His nature? And they made this very important and very biblical proclamation, they said Jesus is fully God and fully man in one. Right? And that idea is, is sort of the, where we get the, uh, sort of the foundation of understanding a Christology from above. What they're doing is they're saying Jesus' divinity defines His humanity. And that has been the primary way Christology has been approached throughout the history of the church. More recently, in the last couple hundred years, after the period of the Enlightenment, where we started asking questions, philosophical questions like, well, how do we know what we know? How can we know? And of course, in that 
age of reason, we start getting things like, well, we can only know what we observe. Christology began to take on some new forms, a Christology from below, which, which basically said all that we can know about Jesus, we have to see it in His life. Like what He actually did and what He actually said. And so they start off with the birth of Jesus with no presuppositions about who He is. So when, when, we, when we read a Gospel like John, and John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God, he's saying this, this birth of this baby was, was the arrival of an eternal one. They say, well, we can't know that because that's not observable. So they discount often a lot of the Old Testament pointings to who the Messiah would be, and they just say all we can know is what we observe. And that leads them to see Jesus as much of what you'll hear regularly today, and, and, and rightly so. The things that he manifested in his life. He's a, he was a teacher. He was compassionate. He was merciful. He was just. He was a seeker of justice. right? All those kinds of things. And the thing is, I would say, and I think, I think most, well, I'll leave it at that. Here's what I would say. They're both, they're both important. But the problem is, is when you, when you focus too much on one over the other, you tend to get a bit of a truncated view of who Jesus is. And so what our aim to do over this sermon series, by going back and forth from Hebrews, which has a, a very high Christology from above, much of what we're going to be talking about in Hebrews is informed by the Old Testament proclamations about what the Messiah would be and how Jesus fulfilled that. We're also going to be looking at how the Gospels reveal what he actually did and said, a Christology from below in many ways, to get a full picture of what he's really like. Because all of it's true. And all of it helps us to understand and worship him rightly. Okay? So that's what the next nine weeks are going to look like for us. Let me direct you back down to the text here. We're going to start off this morning in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 begins with a very lofty sort of Christology from above, although it begins to touch down on some concepts of a Christology from below. But the opening, the opening four verses of Hebrews really set the scene for understanding Jesus for who He is. You there? I'll put it up on the screen here as well. Hebrews 1.1 Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is a beautiful starting point for understanding who Jesus is. And we're going to look at five things that are said about Jesus here to help us see Him rightly. The first one is this. It's that God speaks loudest and most clearly to us through His Son, Jesus. 
Do you see that there in the opening part of the, of the passage? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. First of all, the thing that we ought to notice there and really marvel at is the fact that God speaks. God is a speaking God. He, he has a talking relationship with His image bearers, with us. There's verbal communication, in other words, from God to us. That's a pretty amazing thing to comprehend, right? It's a wonderful thing to know. God speaks to us. And this opening statement tells us something of monumental significance about how He does that. He, it's, it's talking about God's inspired Word and also about God's incarnate Word. His inspired Word and His incarnate Word. First, in regard to His inspired Word, I want you to get this. What the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's not arguing from a, for a break from the Old Testament. In other words, he's not saying long ago and in various ways God spoke to us through the prophets. That's what our Old Testament is all about. You can chuck that now because we have a new revelation. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's arguing for continuity. He, he, he's saying, look, God has always spoken to us. He's always spoken to humanity. He's always revealed truth to us. And throughout ancient history, He did that through various prophets and in various ways. But always as a, as a means of directly communicating with people. That's what God does. And by the way, that, that, that's, a, that's something worth sort of hovering on for just a moment. Do you ever wish that God would speak to you? That's sort of probably in line with a lot of those other existential questions that we often ask. God, would if, if you're there, would you just speak to me? And what the writer here wants us to know is, He is. He is speaking to you. He always has been speaking to you, to us, and this is how. He's not trying to set the Old and New Testaments against each other, but to affirm that all Scripture is indeed God-breathed. God-inspired. He's talking to us. Everything that you read and you hear from the prophets is from God. And that is to affirm our confidence in the Scriptures. He's always spoken to us, and therefore we, we need the whole counsel of Scripture in order to comprehend what He's saying. But what the author is also saying to us here is that that inspired word has been pointing to a better word. He's always been speaking to us. And everything that we hear from the prophets is, is true and from God, but it's been pointing to a better word, the incarnate word. Now, says the writer here, to, to us who are reading it, now in these current final days of salvation history, God has spoken to us in the highest possible way, not through human prophets, but through His own divine Son. Through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And as Jeremy pointed out a little bit earlier as we were singing and he was leading us in that, Jesus said that, that Moses and all the prophets spoke to us concerning Him. They were pointing to Him. He said that, by the way, on Luke 24, verse 27. So the, the point is that the Old Testament prophets are crucial, but they're still partial. They're crucial, but they're partial revelation. They're preparatory words. Without Jesus, they're, they're fragmented. Without Jesus, they're incomplete. But in Jesus, 
God speaks to us fully, decisively, and perfectly. Take into account all that's been said, but completed in the Son, Jesus. And that's why. Because Jesus is unlike the prophets who were messengers of God. He is the Son of God. You know, I, I had an opportunity earlier this summer to attend a, uh, a bat mitzvah, which was the first time that I've ever been able to do something like that. And it was, it was interesting to me as I was, as I was there. And obviously, we're, we're talking about a, a Jewish service in a Jewish synagogue. And <clears throat> there was a lot of Old Testament prophet quotations that were given throughout the service. So that was kind of cool to get, be able to see how how our, our Jewish friends and neighbors use the Old Testament in their services. And I'm, I'm listening to them as they're talking about the promises that God has been making. The, the looking forwards to the, the, the day when Messiah would come and all the things that, that the, our, our Jewish friends are waiting for. And what was interesting to me and, and sad to me was as I'm sitting there as a believer in Jesus going, you know, all the things that you're longing for have happened. We know in Christ that all these things have been revealed and completed and spoken to us in their totality. Like there's, there's a solution to all this waiting. The hope has had a landing point in Christ. And yet where we might say, okay, let's look at some Old Testament prophets and then let's look at the New Testament and see how Jesus has answered these longings, what was happening in that service was that there were uh, there were a lot of sort of modern uh, pop culture quotes that were woven in, and a sense that all this waiting for what God is going to do is maybe, and this was the real sense you get, sort of maybe going to happen in us. Like we'll be the answer to these longings. We'll, there'll be something about us that that rises up and becomes the better humanity. And it was just empty. Author of Hebrews is a Jew writing to Jews and saying, it's not empty. All that longing, all that waiting, all that expectation, it's, it's, it's been fully revealed to us in the person of Jesus Look at all that said of Jesus in verse 3 and how it brings completion to the prophets. Verse 3, He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. In other words, what, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is, look, Ezekiel portrayed the glory of God, but Christ reflects it. Isaiah expanded upon it and told us something about the nature of God as holy and righteous and, and, and merciful, but Jesus manifests it. Jeremiah describes the power of God, but Jesus displays it. Jesus surpasses even the most important prophets of antiquity because He is the Son of God. And therefore, we must listen to Him. 
The point here is this. The word that God spoke by His Son is the decisive word. It's not going to be followed up in this age by any greater word. There's not going to be any further revelation needed or replacement word. This is the Word of God, the person of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus. And the work of Jesus. And the rest of these verses explain how and why the Son, Jesus, is superior. Second thing is this. Everything belongs to Jesus because He created it all. Why is He superior? Everything belongs to Him because He created all of it. That's the second part of verse 2. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. What we see here in this verse is is both a statement of authority and also a statement of assurance, and they need to be taken together. For us as believers, we look at these two verses, we see a statement of authority, we also see a statement of assurance, and they've got to be taken together. Let's consider His authority. To say that Jesus is the heir of all things is to continue using language appropriate to His sonship. And we can understand the idea here. right? And we, we, we all have some sense of understanding about how uh, inheritance works, especially in the ancient context into which this was written. Basically this, the firstborn son was the natural heir to the father's wealth and possessions. That still oftentimes holds true in the ancient world. Greco-Roman and Jewish both, that's the way it always worked. The firstborn son was the heir. That, he was the one who was, who was promised all of the, the wealth and possessions of the Father. So what the author of Hebrews is simply saying here is that Jesus has superiority over everyone and over everything in all of creation because the inheritance of it all belongs to Him. In other words, He alone holds the position of the first Son. And yet the author of the Hebrews isn't saying that Jesus is the first among creation. Or implying that there's other sons. Jesus isn't the the highest member of creation, but rather, he's saying, no, he is the creator. That's what's different. right? That's why he's got first place. Not because he's the first one made. He wasn't made. He made everything. The world that belongs to Jesus belongs to Jesus because He made it. That's a staggering statement to consider. And by the way, when you look at the, the translation here in the ESV, it says that he, he, He's the Creator of the world. The actual Greek word used in the original text was a word that, that means something bigger than world. It's actually a word that rightly translated would be ages. In other words, what the author is saying here is He didn't just make the world. He made the Ages. In other words, He made the cosmos. He made space and time and place. Everything is what falls under the realm of what Jesus made. So when we look at timber and we look at steel, we say Jesus made it. We look at water and we look at land. We look at mountains. We look at valleys. We look at plants and trees. We look at Lions, we look at polar bears, we look at slugs and flies and everything that we see. Think about that. Just the amazing, staggering statement here. Jesus made it. He made all of it. When we look at a 
microscope. And we see the things that our eyes can't see and we see the order to them and the movement of, 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 of organisms that are just minute and think, Jesus made that. And He designed the way that it all works and flows together. He did that. And if we take our microscopes and we, we, we turn them into telescopes and we aim upwards and we see planets and stars and solar systems and galaxies beyond what we can comprehend, we're, we're brought back by the author here to know Jesus made it. He made it all. By the way, I was thinking about existential questions this week a lot. Here's one existential question that will blow your mind a little bit. Scientists tell us that the universe which the author here is just telling us Jesus made, right? They're telling us that the universe is continually expanding. You ever think about this? What's it expanding into? I mean, that'll kind of make you, if you think about it, a little too hard. You know what I think the answer is? According to what we're just told here about the one who created everything? It's expanding into the space in which Jesus and God alone occupy outside of time and space. In other words, everything that goes, and even to spaces we can't comprehend, are within the boundaries of who God is and what He's done and made. Why is Jesus superior? Man, because He blows your mind, that's why. And what does that tell us about ourselves? As your mind is, is being blown by the expanses of the universe into some space we can't comprehend, I want you to come back and just fall back on yourself for just a minute. What does that tell you about you? You know what it ought to tell you about you? You belong to Him. You belong to Him. Whether you acknowledge it or not. Because He made you. And every atom and every molecule and every strand of DNA in your being, He made you. You belong to Him. I was doing uh, marriage prep earlier this week for a couple. I don't do this often. They're, they're non-believers. I, 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 I struggle doing weddings for non-believers. Not because I don't believe that non-believers should get married or that marriage is not a common grace given to the whole world. That's why I will do it. But I struggle with it because I don't know how to do marriage prep in ways that don't revolve entirely around who Jesus is. I think marriage is a picture of the gospel. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm talking to this couple and I can tell, you know, like, like on, on her end, it's sort of like, I, well, I grew up in a, you know, kind of a religious family, went to religious schools, but, you know, eh. And for him, I could see like the smirks of like, oh, here he goes. Here goes Pastor Bill. We're going to talk about Jesus a little bit more, right? So I'm feeling that that tension, and I and it it got to the point where I, I was I was thinking about this. You know, whether or not you acknowledge it or not, you belong to Him. This marriage that you're entering into, that's from Him. And I actually said this to them. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I think is a really important thing for all of us to recognize, and that's this: If Christianity's false, it's entirely unimportant, right? It's false. Who cares? If it's true, it's of ultimate importance. What it cannot be, what Christianity cannot be, what Jesus cannot be, is sort of moderately important. 
You agree with that? That's some, that's some wise words right there. It's so true. So we have to reckon with that. If, if we see this amazing creation around us, even the things that we can't see but can only begin to comprehend and start to ask the existential questions, how did this all happen? And we're, we're, we're met with the reality that there's a maker and his name is Jesus, then that ought to shake us to our core and think, that is the most significant thing I could know. He's of ultimate importance because I belong to him. That's one thing it tells us about ourselves. The second thing would be this. And this is for you believers who, who, who acknowledge Him and believe that He is the one who made all things. If Jesus could take the chaos of the universe and bring order to it, can He do the same for you? That's where assurance comes in. I talked about authority and assurance. Here's the assurance. If the God who made all of that is the one who lived among, walked among, and ministered to us, mankind, then surely He can bring order to the chaos of our own lives. Amen. Jesus is the heir to all things because He made all things. Thirdly, it leads to this. To know exactly what God is like, look to Jesus. Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God. And He is the exact imprint of His nature. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. Just to say a couple, a couple of things that I hope will just, you'll, you'll process as you go from here. and just, can, just ponder these things this week. It says there that He is the radiance of the glory of God. Not the reflection of it, but the radiance of it. So we consider a light bulb. In fact, we have light bulbs in here. Look up, everybody. Okay? You, if, if, if you're sitting under one of these can lights, you can look right into one of those things and you see the source of the light. If you're looking at the soffits around, you'll see that there's light bouncing up off the ceiling. You can't see the bulbs, but the ceiling is acting as a reflector of the light. Right? So there's a difference. You're seeing light. Some places you're seeing reflection of the light. Some places you're seeing the radiance of the source. And that's the idea here, is that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. In other words, to see Jesus is to look directly into the source of the light that is God. To see Jesus is to look like as it's to a light bulb, you're seeing not just the source, but you're seeing that light moving out, right? There's action there. There's movement to that light. But that, that movement, that radiance of the light is not, is not a, a reflection of it. It is the light itself. That's what it is like to look at Jesus and to say, we're looking directly at the glory of God. And He's the exact imprint. The picture here is, is sort of like a, a, a seal. A wax seal, for example, where you, you you dip it, the source into the wax, and you make that stamp, you make that imprint, and you're seeing exactly in that imprint what the source is like. So when Jesus takes on flesh and He walks among us, everything He does and says is a perfect stamp of God. By the way, this is where Christology from below I think is really helpful. 
This is where I think it's, it's very important because, because Jesus is God. We can say, well, everything we've talked about so far, the fact that he's, he's powerful, he's a creator, he's authoritative, right? Th- those are things we would expect. But because we also see a Jesus who humbled himself to walk among us, who took on human flesh and interacted with us so that we could know what God is like, not just by what's proclaimed about him, a Christology from above, if you will, but what's demonstrated by him in this Christology from below, we see that God is manifested in Christ as not just powerful and authoritative and a creator, but also compassionate, gracious and loving, empathetic. He's truthful. He's a friend of sinners. That's a staggering statement too, right? The holy, righteous God who stands above all things condescends to be a friend of someone who doesn't deserve it. He's a defender of the downtrodden and the marginalized. He's near to the poor. The heir of all things. The richest in all existence. A friend of the poor. A seeker and administer of justice. Wise, intelligent, righteous, good, and sacrificial. To look at Jesus and to see how He lived is to say that's exactly what our God is like. And we'll look at those aspects of Jesus in the coming weeks. But the the point is, when you see Jesus, you see God as He is. That's the point. He was not made in the image of God like we are. He is the image of God. Fourthly, Jesus is all-powerful. Holding all things together. This is... Similar in a sort of an outflow of what we talked about already as he was the, the maker and the heir of all things. But, but it goes a step further. It says not only did he make all things, but he upholds them. He sustains them. Actively, regularly, daily, moment by moment, by the word of his power. In other words, the, the Jesus that the author of Hebrews is pointing us here to is not at all like the Jesus or the God of a deist. Who believes that you know God made everything, but then he kind of walked away and just sort of let it tick off on its own. Like a cosmic watchmaker. You've heard that analogy, I'm sure. He's saying, no, no, no. Jesus is not only the creator, but the sustainer of the universe. In other words, he's intimately involved with every movement of all of it. So when we think about looking at that microscope or looking at that telescope and we wonder things like how does all that work together how does that all move like like how do the planets and the suns and the stars not just start swinging off into chaos and banging into each other I actually asked that question this week so I googled it why don't like why doesn't why don't stars and the solar systems all just sort of like move off and bang into each other and the answer to that question is there's this, there's this concept that, that scientists sort of understand but don't totally understand. And, that, and they say it's this, that there, there's something called microgravity in the universe. In other words, there is some force everywhere, even away from the masses of planets and suns, that somehow holds everything in place. And I go, yeah, I know what it is. 
Daniel, we're told that it is the Lord who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He's actively involved. Matthew 10, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Not a bird will fall from the sky today that God doesn't actively know about and sustain and ordain its existence. And then Jesus says, and He, he knows every hair on your head. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to marvel at that. This Creator is also the sustainer by just His Word. So I ask that question again. What does that say about, about us? What does it say about the assurance of our salvation? And, I, and I, I have this beautiful, simple answer. And it's similar to what I said earlier. But if the Creator and the Sustainer speaks into the universe, if He speaks it, whatever He commands is always done, then we can be certain that the salvation that He has spoken into our hearts will surely be accomplished no matter what. Right? No matter what. He speaks it, it's done. And He's spoken His salvation into the hearts of His children. And Paul says in Romans, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? He is intimately involved in our lives by His sustaining grace. And that's evident by the fifth thing, which is sort of this mid-sentence turn that comes there at the end of the verse that feels a little abrupt. But it points us to this. Number five, Jesus' crowning achievement is the Gospel. Now think about what I just said. I've said already, Jesus is the, 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 the most loud, clear revelation of God as He speaks into all of creation and to humanity. He is the one who makes all things and sustains. Sorry, I'm going to from my mic. This isn't working. He makes all things. He sustains all things. He's the heir to all things. Right? I've said some, some impressively big things as we've looked at how the author of Hebrews has described Jesus so far. And then to say this, that His crowning achievement is the Gospel. The writer says, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, think about this for a second. It seems strange that we would be directed to purification of sins. Back, back down to ourselves, in other words. Immediately after we've had our gaze pointed upwards, right? We've been, we've been looking at the universe. We've been looking at the cosmos for all this time. This, this vast thing, and all of a sudden the writer of Hebrews is saying, now come back down and, and let's talk about how He affects you as the one who purifies sin. But for the author of Hebrews, that's a very fitting thing to do because remember, he's telling us about how God speaks to us. 
A God who speaks to us. In other words, it's thrilling to consider Jesus who is the Creator and the heir of all things and the radiance of the glory of God and the imprint who sustains everything by His Word. But remember, this is a God who speaks to people. And and after all, when all of my existential questions have been asked, I ask all those big questions. Isn't what I'm really looking for what does that mean for me? That may sound a little selfish, but I mean, isn't that what we're doing? We're asking existential questions. What does that mean for me? Right? If I believe there's a God, if I believe there's an explanation for all this, a purpose and a meaning to it, don't I then need to know how do I obtain access to that? I, I, I'm pretty quickly going to realize, you know what? I'm not at all like this Jesus. But I need Him. And the thing that separates me from His majesty is my brokenness. My sin. So what do I need? I need a purification. Right? My biggest questions are accompanied by a realization of my biggest need. And so all of this glorious knowledge, this amazing, mind-blowing knowledge about the superiority of God's Son informs me of what He alone is qualified to do. Get that. Uh, the reason why we've been looking at all these grand statements about who this Jesus is, it's, it's, it's there to inform us about therefore what He alone is qualified to do. He and only He can make purification for sin. Do you notice how everything else that we've looked at so far is, is sort of this, it's continual. He, he, he creates and He sustains. It's continuing activity. He radiates. He manifests. All that's continual activity. And yet we get to this last statement here made by the author and we see that it's a very specific and finished thing. He made purification for sins and then He sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's finished. It's complete. In other words, he's saying this one who alone is qualified to do it, he did it. And it's done. And the text indicates, and most scholars agree, that this is why verse 2 says, something that I, I wonder if you caught and thought this was a little strange. It says there that he was appointed the heir of all things. Appointed? Wait, I thought he's the one who created the universe. If he created it, why did he have to be appointed heir of it? It's a great question. I think that's why the writer puts those two statements together because he wants us to see something that he doesn't, he doesn't need to be appointed. It's always belonged to him. He made it. And yet there's something about a declaration, an appointment that was made to him as the one who's worthy to receive all of it. And here's why. There's a very real sense that his crowning achievement, that appointment, was made complete by his finished work on the cross. By his resurrection and by his ascension to the Father's right side. In other words, it's to say that when God's full revelation to us, his his better word, his, his radiant manifestation was spoken to us in Jesus, 
And by his death and resurrection and ascension, when that finished work happened, then it was complete and final. That's why he says, like, the prophets, and I mean, God's been speaking to us all along, but, but in these final days, this last, this last revelation in, in the, in the, in the grand arc of salvation history, we hear most clearly and perfectly from him in his son, because his son did something that all of it was leading to. And he did it. I began this morning by highlighting the most important question that can ever be asked as posed by Jesus Himself. Remember? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And what's interesting is at the end of John's Gospel, the Apostle Thomas gave his answer. Peter gave it a little earlier on, right? He said, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. Thomas, we hear from at the end. And this is what he says. By the way, think about this. He, he walked with Jesus for three years. He saw all of his, his miracles. He beheld the radiance of God's glory in Jesus' incarnate life. But it was only at the end, after he saw Jesus through the lens of the Gospel, in other words, through His death and resurrection, as the one who conquered sin and death, that he truly saw Jesus for all that He is. And it says in John chapter 20, Verses 28 to 31, that Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. Kind of a delayed reaction, right? Who do you say that I am? After he dies and resurrects, Thomas comes back and falls and says, My Lord and my God. And that's what inspired my sermon title this morning, by the way. Did you notice that at the top of your bulletin, the title of the sermon, Jesus, our Lord and our God? That, that's, that's why Jesus has a more excellent name than even the angels. That's what it says here at the end of the, of the text here this morning. Having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's why he has a more excellent name than even the angels, who are the highest created messengers of God. Jesus' name is superior and more beautiful because Jesus alone is the Son of God. And John's Gospel concludes the account of Thomas's confession with this. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name.